Hello and welcome to Wealth of Knowledge. I'm your host, Antonio Barbera, and today in the show we have a very special guest here to talk all about personal finance and building wealth. But first, I'd like to welcome my co-host this week, U.S. News Senior Editor for Personal Finance, Susanna Snyder. Susanna reports and writes consumer-focused articles on taxes, family finance, debt, banking, credit, spending, and other topics related to financial health and savvy money management. She also oversees and edits the My Money blog, which publishes financial advice from outside money experts, including tax preparers, shopping experts, financial planners, cord cutters, and bloggers. Susanna, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. And our guest this week is David Bach. David is a trusted financial expert and one of the best-selling financial authors of our time. He has written nine consecutive New York Times bestsellers with over seven million copies in print, including two number one New York Times bestsellers, The Automatic Millionaire and Start Late, Finish Rich. In addition to his books, David has impacted millions of people over the past two decades through his seminars, speeches, newsletters, and thousands of media appearances. He is also the co-founder of AE Wealth Management, regarded as one of America's fastest-growing financial planning firms, and the founder of Finish Rich Media, a website dedicated to revolutionizing the way people learn about money. His latest book is The Latte Factor, Why You Don't Need to Be Rich to Live Rich, and it's out this week. David, thank you for coming on to share your expertise. You guys, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I want to spend some time today going over your book as, as well as ask you uh, some of your personal finance best practices. But first, I'd love, I'd love for you to share more of your background on personal finance for our listeners. How did you get started in finance and, and what keeps you motivated after, after so many best-selling books? <laughs> yeah, you bet. Well, I mean, first of all, I started in this business very young. So I invested in my first stock at the age of seven, and that was because my grandmother, Rose Bach, who had started with nothing at the age of 30, she, she's taught herself over her lifetime how to invest, and she became a self-made millionaire. And at age seven, she helped me buy my first stock, which was in McDonald's, my favorite restaurant at the time in the whole world. And so my first lessons about money came really young. You know, my, I love to play Monopoly, but my grandmother basically taught me how to play it for real by buying my first stock. I always tell the story like seven, I bought McDonald's at nine. I went up to Mickey Mouse at Disneyland and said, hey, are you publicly traded? And that was, be, that was because of my grandmother's teachings. So the crazy story, because it's like, I'm going to jump all over the place here for a second. But at nine, I went to my first investment class. And that's because my father was a financial advisor and he was teaching the class. And so at nine, he had me in a suit and tie come to that class and hand out the worksheets in the front of that class at nine. And the reason this is so crazy to tell the story right now is that last week I taught a, I did a, a book event with my family and our clients because my family has been in the investment business now for 50 years. And a gentleman came up to me and said, I was at that class when you were nine years old. Wow. And I was like, no, seriously? He's like, seriously, you were in a suit and tie and you were, and my, my son's nine. And he said, yes, yeah, seriously, you were the same age as your son right here. And I go, you know what's crazy? I tell these stories and I remember these stories. And you're like a person that was there, which was a long time ago because I'm 52. So that was like, you know, quite a while ago. <laughs> so now before we get into the book, I, I want to talk about the process of writing a fictional story to support uh, what I've sort of called a nonfiction situation, let's say. So what was that process like? I mean, is this your first foray into fiction? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I guess in a way it is my first foreign fiction because I've got 7 million books out and I've written 12 other books, but they're all non-scriptive. They're all non-fiction how-to prescriptive books. And I really wrote this book because I just realized, like, let's be honest, most people are never going to read a book on personal finance, even though people need it, right? Like, so I, it's kind of the same thing with business books. Not everybody will go out and buy a business book, but they'll read a book like Who Moved My Cheese? Like, one of the greatest all-time business books probably, you know, for many, many people was Who Moved My Cheese by Spencer Johnson. They'll read a book like um, The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho. Um, and learn how to go on their own lifetime journey of spiritual development. So I thought to myself, how can I write a little book that could impact the hundreds of millions of people that are living paycheck to paycheck? Just in this country alone, right? Like half of America, over half of America today lives paycheck to paycheck. Seven out of 10 men live paycheck to paycheck. Eight out of 10 women live paycheck to paycheck. Almost half of America can't get their hands on, on $400 in case of emergency purposes. That's according to the Federal Reserve. So I, I decided like, I've had this idea for 10 years, but I didn't have the whole idea. Mm -hmm. I knew I wanted to write a little book that could be read in an hour, that could be given out as graduation gifts, that could be given out by employers to employees to get them to use their 401k plan, but get them to read something that they wouldn't normally read that would really motivate you to start paying yourself first, saving money automatically, and realizing that small amounts of money could change everything. This was like a, in a way, a tricky way to, to teach the miracle of compound interest that we all know. If you're in financial services, you know it's so much easier if you start young. But most people don't. Most people don't have a grandmother who teaches them how to buy stocks. Most people don't go to a school that teaches them about money. So I kind of looked at this and said, I've got 26 years of knowledge. How can I package this up in a way that more, it would reach more people? Yeah, and, and you bring up some of those facts that you just that you just said were ones that I noticed that you sort of sprinkled in to the story. So I, th I think you did a really nice job of, of complementing, you know, the the fiction, the story of Zoe, uh, along with the important you know stats about the the situation of a lot of Americans that that are going to resonate you know through that story. Well, and part of the, the big part of the mission with this book was to really reach young people, mm -hmm. to reach millennials, and. And there's 77 million millennials, and there's an entire generation that needs to get going on an investment plan. They need to pay themselves first. They need to use their 401k plans. They need to buy their first home. And I intentionally wrote this book with a, a woman as a central character. Zoe Daniels is 27 years old. She, yeah, I mean, I, actually, because you can see me and I can see you, but if I just turn the camera, everybody else is listening, but if I turn the camera, that's the Freedom Tower right there. And I live downtown in Manhattan, and I walk through the Oculus every day. And so the main character, Zoe Daniels, is 27 years old. She's a millennial. She lives in Brooklyn. She's been working in New York City now for six years. It's like her dream to be here. And she's a travel editor at a magazine. But she's never traveled. Like, she's got this... She, she went into the travel a travel editing business because she loves to travel, but she, or she wants to travel, but she never traveled. And after six years of making more money, she's still living paycheck to paycheck. And so what happens at the very beginning of this book is that she comes out of the Fulton Center, which is the largest subway station in New York City, the bottom of, the, of downtown. And she comes outside the Oculus, which is this beautiful $4.5 billion development right next to the Freedom Tower. And she starts walking through this, this, this beautiful place with white marble. And there's an LCD screen the size of a football field. And on that LCD screen, it says... 
if you don't know where you're going, you might not like where you end up. Ironically, the advertisements by a financial service company. And she takes his escalator up above ground, right up by the 9-11 memorial. And she's walked by the 9-11 memorial now for six years. She's never really paid attention to it. She's always just rushed to her office. And on this particular day, she sits down on a bench and she asks herself a question. Where is she going with her life? And then she walks into the office totally depressed because she doesn't like where she's going. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, as as you've described sort of how this book starts off, it's really something that, you know, is really plot-driven. And I know I kind of cruised through it in an afternoon, um, like a really sort of quick, good read. Um, so something that we learn within the book uh, is that the latte factor isn't just about buying coffees. So, oh, my well, God, I want to come and give you a hug right now. That's exactly right. It's not about the coffee. Yeah, well, we'll get more into the specifics later on in the show, but like, can you explain just as an introduction what the latte factor is? So clearly, not just about coffees. Well, and I love the fact that you got that because somebody else was a critic of me today and was out yelling and screaming and telling people to go buy their effing lattes. And she clearly didn't understand what the book was about. She didn't read it. Um, so the latte factor has always been a metaphor. It's actually ironically never been about giving up your coffee. It's, it's what it, what it was, what it was about and what it is about is if you don't believe you can save money, if you believe that you don't have enough money to save, you'll never save. You'll just never start. Right. And so what happens with Zoe is she doesn't believe she can save any money. She doesn't believe she can, she can ever travel. She doesn't believe she can buy this beautiful picture on the wall that she sees at a coffee shop. And she shares that with her boss at work, whose name is Barbara. Barbara is this woman who becomes her first mentor, really. It's almost like a secretive mentor. Because what you don't know, and I don't want to give away the whole story, but it turns out that Barbara, who, who's her boss, who she thinks is a little bit maybe frumpy and a little bit older, turns out Barbara's super sophisticated and actually very wealthy and turns her on to some mentors. And one of those mentors is at a coffee shop, ironically. And this mentor, who she has no idea is also wealthy, says to her, you know what, you're, that coffee you're holding in your hand, you could actually afford this painting on the wall. And she's like, what are you talking about, right? And then he says, well, let me just, and he starts to teach her about the miracle of compound interest. And he starts by using $5 as an example. And I've always, I've said when I talk about the latte fact, you know, if you're in your 20s and you save $5 a day and you put that in your 401k plan, and we have a chart in the book and he does the numbers, he shows her $5 a day, it could be worth almost a million dollars by the time you reach retirement. The number is exactly $948,000. And he uses a rate of return of 10%. And he explains to her where that rate of return comes from, right? Like he says, you know, that's what the stock market has averaged since 1926. But it could be less than 10%. And he goes through the numbers. It could be 7% or it could be 5%. He just shows her the math. And, and then later he says to her, but, you know, truthfully, what he really tells her is like $5 a day is not enough. You need to save more than that. You need to save one hour a day of your income. And he actually teaches her, and this is the lesson I teach everyone, you need to save the first hour a day of your income. You, when you come to work at 9, you need to save from 9 to 10 o'clock. And that turns out to be 12.5% of your gross income. And he shows her what that looks like over her lifetime with the 401k plan. If we could just get people across America to pay themselves first one hour a day of their income, 
we would have a completely different country on our hands. We wouldn't have so many people living paycheck to paycheck. We wouldn't have so many people struggling. And so what she learns at a young age is that there's actually a lot of hope for her. And it might just start with 5 to $10 a day. And if she doesn't want to give up the coffee, by the way, he tells her, you don't have to. But you got to give up something. You got to make some changes in your life. You, and I always say you got to give you got to give up something small to get up to something big. And so now you know you, you spoke, spoke about those five that five dollars maybe ten dollars. One of the overarching points I think that you make in the book is that earnings and spending work in tandem, and that the more people earn, the more they tend to immediately spend that that extra earning, that extra income. In your book, you write, earnings are like the tide and your spending is like a boat. Uh, I absolutely love that. Why do you think it's so difficult for consumers to manage spending when their earnings go up? Oh, well, first of all, let me ask you guys something. Do, does that sound true to you, what I said? Do you know people who have made more money and spent more money? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Lifestyle <laughs> inflation. <laughs> because, because I did, right? Like... I got out of college and thought if I made $50,000 a year, I would be rich until I made $50,000 a year and then I spent sixty. <laughs> then I thought if I make $75,000 a year, then I'll save money and then I made seventy five dollars and spent eighty five. Then I thought if I make a hundred, that's the secret. If I can make 100000 a year in my 20s, then I'll save money. And I still wasn't. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was somebody who experienced lifestyle creep until I met this couple that is, a, is the, called Jim and Sue McIntyre in the Automatic Millionaire book. I met this couple. I'm working at Morgan Stanley. I have a beautiful lease Jaguar convertible. I have a beautiful apartment. It's rented. I have a Rolex watch. And I'm living paycheck to paycheck. And in walks this couple who's you know 52 years old, ordinary income, never made more than $55,000 a year, and comes into my office able to retire. And I was just like, oh my God, I'm doing, what, did, what did you guys do to get here? And, and, you know, and they're your classic millionaire next door. And there's a millionaire next door. Oh, we call her the millionaire down the hallway in this book. Um, but not everybody spends, increases their spending when they grow their income. Yeah, I, I didn't realize that when I was young. Like a lot of people <laughs> grow their income and they don't grow their expenses. They actually keep the extra money. I mean, the amazing thing is if you got a bonus... And you always took that bonus and just actually saved it. It wouldn't take you 40 years to retire. You could retire by the time you're in your 50s. There are a lot of millennials right now who want to retire in 20 years. There's a whole movement called FIRE of people who want to have financial independence retire early. And they're they're not even thinking about it. Like to them, saving $5 or $10 a day is ridiculous. <laughs> they're, they're trying to figure out how to save 20, 30, 40, 50% of their income. And the amazing thing is there are people doing it. I've met them. I've met these, these incredible souls that were like, I couldn't save any money and then I made a radical change in my life and I decided that freedom was more important than stuff. And the reason we grow our expenses and we make more money is marketing. We're marketed to, to spend more money. We've been led to believe through marketing that targets us. Market, today, marketing is more sophisticated than it's ever been. It's not just a, an ad running through a television show. Today, the advertisers literally know as you grow your income, they know how to target you with the next ad that you, you should see to buy something that now you can afford. Mm-hmm. So marketing is designed to separate you from your income. And marketers are more sophisticated at taking our money than we are at keeping our money. And that's, I think that's also woven into... 
sort of the advances of social media in the last, let's say, 10 to 15 years, I would say, where the marketing is, is such a big part of that. I want to get into the first section of your book, Pay Yourself First, which you've, you've touched on a little bit. It seems that uh, from your book that motivation is the most important first step that's going to drive saving, and then saving is going to drive wealth. So in the book, you attack motivation um, by, by teaching Zoe to pay herself first. Can, can you talk a little bit more uh, about that concept? Yeah, so here's what's really interesting. It's actually not motivation, and I'll tell you why it's not motivation. The concept of pay yourself first is actually that you can't get wealthy budgeting. See, budgeting takes motivation. Having a budget requires motivation to track where your money is going, figure out what categories it should go into, and then it requires a discipline of like putting money here and putting money there. What Zoe learns is that she shouldn't actually try to have discipline. She should make everything automatic because she actually learns that budgeting doesn't work for most people. So what she's taught by her mentors is you just need to pay yourself first. She's actually taught this lesson that's so important, which is she needs to become financially selfish. And, and, and it's kind of like she's raised by parents who are always like, don't be selfish, don't be selfish, like so many people are. And she learned she needs to become financially selfish, that the first person who should get paid when she earns a paycheck is her. And that's what I would say to anybody listening. Like you're, a lot of people listen to podcasts on the way to work. And when you go to work, you trade your time, which is your life, for money. It's a major trade-off, by the way, unless you love what you're doing. And most people will work 90,000 hours or more during their lifetime. And yet the average person in America today who has a retirement account has $63,000 in savings, which means they've converted very little of their time to money. So again, going back to pay yourself first, the idea is the first hour that you make, you keep it. Now, the best way she's taught to do it is with a 401k plan. If you have, a, if you have an employer and they have a 401k plan, the simplest, easiest thing you can do is sign up for your 401k plan and have 12.5% moved right off the top. The, the best number is even more than that. Like Fidelity, who has the largest 401k plan in America with 16 million people in it and, and 20,000 employers. So there's probably people listening who have a Fidelity plan. Fidelity tracks 401k millionaires, like Zoe basically is taught to become. And what Fidelity knows is that the people who have become millionaires in their 401k plans, which is now almost 200,000 people, the magic formula, what they saved, was 14% of their gross income. That is approximately one hour and 10 minutes of their day. When you think of it that way, it's not a big deal. So, you know, speaking of the, is it the 12.5% going into the 401k, are there other vehicles for your savings in addition to that? Like, should there be a percentage going into an emergency fund? or into uh, maybe some kind of midterm or short-term savings vehicle as well? How should people balance those with the 401k? Yes, and I think that's the thing that throws people so much. Mm -hmm. such, I'm so glad you asked this question. Um, so before I break up where it should go, the most important thing is wherever it goes. An emergency account, uh, paying down debt, a dream account, which happens to be, again, Zoe does all these things in the book, right? Like she's got mm -hmm. student loans, 
She wants to someday buy a home. She wants to take a sabbatical. She learns that she's got to save for all of these things automatically. And the good news is now it's super easy. Like when I was growing up, it was not easy. But it's so weird to be an age I can say that. But like, you know, now I can open up my little iPhone and I can click on an app, like a zillion different apps. I'm an investor in a company called Acorns. Just an example of one company where you can go click, click, click and be saving your change automatically. There's a lot of these companies. Um, so aside from the 401k plan, people need to get their emergency accounts going. And they should be saving money, whatever it is, $100 a month, $200 a month, $300 a month, automatically into an emergency account. They and, and so for some people who have no emergency savings, they say, well, should I fill that up first or should I use a 401k plan? Uh, I still think you should use a 401k plan and you should fill an emergency account. So maybe for some people, like instead of saving one hour a day of their income, they're saving 30 minutes into the 401k plan, which would be 6%. They're putting 30 minutes, which would be another 6%, into their emergency account. Sure. Then, then once that emergency account is set up, then they go back to the 401k plan. Uh, I'm a big believer in dream accounts. So I think that the, the importance of saving is not to have the money. It's to pay for the stuff you want to do. And one of the great, I was, like Zoe learns in the book, that one of her, ment her mentor Henry says, the way you make your dreams come true is you buy them. And so he teaches her, like, you know, if you want to go take one of these trips on one of these pictures that you see, then you just, you know, look, you might not be able to take the trip in 90 days. Like, this this is coming out in May, right? Like, my book's coming out May 7th, and I'll be all over the media talking about this in May. There are a lot of people who will go on summer trips, and they didn't save for it. They're going to put it on their credit card. There are a lot of people who won't go on a summer trip because they can't afford it. And what I would say to anybody who has a dream trip that they can't afford now, well, next summer is 13 months from now. So if you saved money over the next 13 months, automatically, you could pay for that trip free and clear. And it's, we've got this amazing Facebook group that uh, came on board to help learn about the book in advance. They got preview copies and now they've been reading it and they've been talking about it and taking these challenges with me. And one person read the book and she's like, somebody was saying how they wanted to go on a dream trip, like Zoe. Mm -hmm. And this other person posted, you know, how much is your trip going to cost? And the person wrote like $1,200. And then she posted a meme that said, you know, the difference between going on that trip and not going on that trip is making your lunch at home for, for 90 days. Make your lunch at home for 90 days and you can afford to go on that dream trip. And, and, she, and they posted the math. They were like, you'll save this much money in 90 days and then you can go on that dream trip. And it was like, ah, oh, I get it. Thanks for listening to Wealth of Knowledge. Since we had such a great conversation with David Bach, we've decided to cut the interview into two parts. You've just finished part one, and part two will air next week, picking up right where we left off discussing David's book, The Latte Factor, and how to build wealth with small steps. And the easiest way to not miss part two is by subscribing to Wealth of Knowledge on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. If you have personal finance questions related to debt, saving money, loans, or credit you'd like answered on future shows, please email wealthofknowledge at usnews.com. We'll review your emails, and we'll try to answer a few on the next personal finance episode. Finally, if you'd like to read up on personal finance information, check out money.usnews.com slash personal finance, where we have all sorts of advice on spending, budgeting, banking, taxes, and much more. Thanks for listening to Wealth of Knowledge. I'm Antonio Barbera. 
see you next week.